Brendan. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. For many years in the early days of my marriage... We spent time, at least I did, uh, involved in mountaineering and climbing. Rock climbing, peak climbing, and uh, it was very exciting. One of the things that I loved to do was to look in the distance at a gorgeous mountain peak, particularly one that was snow-laden or glacier-laden, and to dream of what it would be like to climb that particular peak. And then, when the opportunity came having driven to the base of the peak and getting ready all the equipment out and loaded up for for bear to climb this peak, it would keep my eyes, keep my eyes focused on that peak, as I did with my climbing partner. And so as we kept our eyes focused on the peak, it seemed, though, from time to time that clouds would enshroud that peak. Or perhaps we would end up in a valley or on a switchback area that would completely obliterate our vision of the peak. But ultimately, if we kept persisting, if we kept moving, if we kept climbing, heading toward that peak, ultimately it came into view again. And that may have disappeared again in the same way, until finally, in the final iteration of the climb, we were able to keep that peak entirely in view. This is very much like our lives, friends. You see, the song used to say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The problem is there are so many clouds that get in the way. The problem is there are so many difficulties, and the labor of the journey seems so overwhelming that, well, we lose our gaze. And if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, much like Peter did when he went sinking after walking on the water. Today on Viewpoint, we'll want to find out what it means and how to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. It requires that we focus our gaze. And in order to do that, I've invited a special guest to join us here on Viewpoint, Max Wilkins. I don't think he's ever joined us here on the program before, but he has an absolutely fantastic book called Focusing My Gaze, Beholding the Upward, Inward, and Outward Mission of Jesus. And friends, it'll change your life if you listen today. So welcome aboard. I'm Chuck Chris Myers' conversation with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms, and today we'll be transforming for you as you learn to keep your focus, the focus of your gaze, on Jesus. So, Max, it's good to have you on the program. I understand you live in a peachy keen where area of the world where everything is peaches and cream in Georgia. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be on with you today. And, yes, I definitely live in the peach state, just just outside the city of Atlanta. And um, it is absolutely gorgeous right now here. It's, it's, it's what we live here for. Well, have you ever had the experience uh, of attempting to climb a mountain or a peak like I have? You know, I was amazed as you were talking because I just 
finished doing the Camino de Santiago in Spain, and the, the opening section of the Camino de Santiago is crossing the Pyrenees, and I actually had almost the identical experience you were describing because I was I was going to the summit of of the Pyrenees and some clouds came in and obscured the summit for a while and then it would appear and then it would get lost in the clouds again and so I, as you were talking I was thinking wow I just lived this very experience. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know about how Mount St. Helens blew its stack many years ago. Yes. But two years before Mount St. Helens blew its stack, my wife and I were on the glacial slopes of Mount St. Helens, and I was in the process of uh, making a climb to the summit, or at least I thought I was, until we were completely enshrouded by a pea soup fog. We call them whiteouts, and you can't see yourself or love nor money. In fact, we were roped up with our crampons on and our ice axes and could not see more than maybe 10 feet in front. I couldn't even see my climbing partner. Wow. And then we heard water running somewhere as if it were running under our feet, and it was a very, very spooky situation. I imagine. Then, in crying out to the Lord, help, all of a sudden a wind came up as if it were a knife slicing through butter, a hot knife slicing through butter, and completely obliterated a pathway through all of that deep whiteout so that we could see over a hundred miles down across spirit lakes that are now filled with lava and all the way down a hundred miles. I will never, ever forget that uh, experience. And uh, it caused me to remember that even in the darkest times, even in the most times when things seem, our gaze of the Lord seems to be totally obliterated, he can come through and wants to come through and sweep through and open up our vision so that we can see him with purity of heart. And I think that's what your book is about. Yes, absolutely. I love I love stories like that one that you just told as well. I had multiple experiences along the Camino de Santiago that were very similar. And I think probably the strongest thing I came away from the Camino with is not only that we don't walk alone, but that the Lord wants us to find him along the journey as, as we travel together. All right, well, let's talk about this matter of gaze, G-A-Z-E. Uh, we don't often use the word, uh, I don't think, in common parlance. We talk about seeing, uh, we talk about vision, but we don't talk about our gaze. And gaze actually requires not just that we see with our eyes, but that our eyes become fixed on a particular a point or a viewpoint, don't they? Doesn't it? they? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's an intentionality about mm -hmm, it. And mm -hmm. um, you know, most it, it seems like most commonly these days, if we use the word at all, it's about gazing across the crowded room and and seeing the love of our lives or something. But um, I always go back to um, to Hebrews telling us to set aside all the things that weigh us down and the sin that that tangles us up, and instead um, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us endured the cross, and it goes on. It's a beautiful passage, but this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus is more than just a casual glance, and I, I think gaze is a good word for that. Well, somebody might be listening, and they say, you know, this sounds like uh, much too much of a, a, a hyperventilated spiritual conversation here. I'm not sure I can get my mind and heart around it. 
But the reality is that by the time we're through, everyone who will uh, endure through the entirety of the program is going to learn how to fix their gaze in such a way that it will change their life. And uh, i got to tell you, I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor for 50 years, and uh, I went to a church-related college university and majored in religion and psychology. My wife thought she had a real catch, I'll tell you. Uh, She and I were both Christians, became believers at the age of five, and boy, she thought she had really uh, nailed somebody down that was going to be exactly what she anticipated. But what she didn't realize is that even though I was a spiritually-minded man, I didn't quite have the fixed gaze that I needed to have. And she began to realize that. We'll talk about that when we get back, friends. This is Viewpoint. Our special guest, Max Wilkins, focusing my gaze. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. As you know, on this program, we deal with some of the most difficult issues that human beings can can deal with. We deal with issues that few will touch with a 10-foot pole because they're deemed to be too sensitive. Yes, even for Christians. And so in doing that, I become concerned sometimes that we have the potential of losing our gaze that our gaze becomes redirected on things that maybe we can't do anything about. Probably we can't, but we need to, need to understand what they are. But it's possible to get the gaze redirected so badly that we lose sight of the kingdom of God and what it's really all about. And that's why, for some of you, you might wish that we kept dealing with say, the coronavirus and the vaccines, or you you may wish that we dealt with abortion every day. You may wish that we did that, but there's a reason why we don't. Because we're here to prepare the way of the Lord for history's final hour. That's right. We're living in those times, and we need to have our gaze fixed on the Lord and on his coming. In fact, uh, Jesus' beloved disciples said, whoever has that hope, the hope of the second coming in him, will purify himself even as Christ is pure. Hmm. Maybe you've never read that passage, but that's a very, very important passage, and it leads us back to a fellow by the name of Isaiah, a fellow by the name of Isaiah who, in a time of Israel's consternation after 52 years of the reign of King Uzziah, had his eyes opened dramatically by an experience with the Lord and caused him to focus his gaze in ways that he had never, ever seen before. Max Wilkins, our guide here today on Viewpoint with his book, Focusing My Gaze. Max, uh, that passage of, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. The angels cried, holy, 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 and 
boy, I'll tell you, did it ever fix, uh, change Isaiah's viewpoint? Absolutely. That that was always one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I, I have to admit that even though um, envy is, is not something we should aspire to, I was always a little envious of Isaiah getting to see the Lord in all of his glory, high and lifted up and exalted. And I used to think, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if that could happen to me? Well, the but problem I, with that kind of envy would have been that you might, like him, might have been thrown, put in a log and sawn in half as he was. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but but the But the other thing that I've come to believe over the years is that God actually desires for us to have the, those kinds of experiences as well. And, you know, we, we, we love the passage in Jeremiah that says, I know the plans I have for you, says the mm-hmm. Lord, and all. But we, we want to stop at the end of the plans to build us up and give us a hope and a future. And God goes on and says, because if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. All right, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just named the biggest little word in the Bible, if. Absolutely. That is a word that very few pastors really want to focus on in all of its occurrences in Scripture because they think it's too tough. If, if my people, which are called by my name, not if those liberals, the abortionists, the homosexuals, but if my people, if my people, if my people, And uh, that big little word, if, is a huge word in the Bible and conditions all of God's promises on the fear of the Lord, unfortunately, or fortunately. You're absolutely right. And uh, we, we, we want to claim the promises sometimes without taking into consideration the clauses that tell us what the promises hinge on. Called the conditions. Yes. (laughs) Well, here's Isaiah. We think of him as a, as a very godly man and indeed he was, and he was called of God for an express purpose. It was not an easy purpose. And uh, unfortunately, in order for God to use someone powerfully in a truly hardcore righteous way, that person needs to come face-to-face with God. That person needs to come face-to-face with their own personal inadequacy and sin before God can use them, does he? Absolutely. And, you know, Isaiah had that awesome experience of seeing the glory of God, and I love the fact that when King Uzziah had died and the whole nation was in a panic, Isaiah saw the Lord because Isaiah turned his gaze upward and looked for the Lord. And um, when other people were looking who knows where for their answers, Isaiah was looking to the Lord. But in the light of the glory of God, he also saw perhaps for the first time himself as he truly was in light of God's glory. And you know, the the scripture goes on and says, in English, it says, he cried out, woe is me. But um, he wasn't speaking English, he was speaking Hebrew. And uh, in Hebrew, he was crying out, away. But that's a Semitic cry that you can still hear in the Middle East today. And it's not a woe is me. It's basically the shrieking cry of a severed heart. It, 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 it's what uh, a mother would shriek out if she just got the news that her child had been killed in a bombing or something along those well, lines. Well, it's going and, to be the same and, thing that uh, the scriptures say is going to happen. I believe it's the prophet Zechariah said that this is how the Jewish people are going to respond when their eyes are finally open, their gaze is finally fixed on the Lord of glory, Yeshua, the Messiah, 
And when they recognize him for what they, he is, uh, the lament that is going to go up in Israel is going to be so severe that they won't even do it collectively. Every person is going to separate themselves in the great grief and, uh, and lament of their heart. Absolutely, because, you know, it's just a devastating thing when we see in all its fullness that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Lord. And, you know, mm-hmm. Isaiah is catching a glimpse for the first time of, of, of not only who he truly is, but he says, not only am I a man of unclean lips, but every person I know is in the same boat I'm in. There's nobody that's, that's righteous, he's saying, in light of God's glory. And he begins to recognize his need, which I think, you know, is the first step most of us need to take in order to really come into right relationship. Even with the Lord. Daniel, the prophet, uh, who was considered one of the three most righteous men in the scripture from God's viewpoint, in uh, Daniel chapter 9, in his great prayer uh, for Israel, for the Jewish people, included himself among the unrighteous and said, We have sinned. Yes. We, we, we. But today, Unfortunately, Max, as I have noticed across the country, uh, pleading this cause after having left the practice of law at the height of my career then in uh, 1993, uh, what I have noticed is a unwillingness among professing Christians and their pastors even to truly say the we word. It's always they. It's always the liberals or the abortionists or Slick Willie in the White House or Barack Obama or Joe Biden or someone. It's always someone else. And we have not yet come to grips with the fact it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Amen. Amen. And so many people today want to move to the grace of God and the glory of God in their lives and the abundant life in Jesus Christ without going through the self-inspection and the repentance that's involved in both coming to terms with the fact that you need a Savior and why. Okay. Now, let's go back uh, in order to set our the thinking for all of our listeners here today. As we talk about Isaiah, and he's encountering the Lord there in Isaiah chapter 6, and in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple, and the angels cried, Holy, Holy, Holy. And then he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I live in the midst of a people uh, who are undone just like me, and uh, now what? Yet the scripture says he saw the glory of God. He saw the glory of God. Now, we, we have sung a number of songs of late, choruses and so on, Uh, One that comes to my mind is, see his glory, see his glory come down. I don't think most people have a clue what that means Hmm. and don't even want his glory to come down. Not really, because if they did, they would first have to see, as Isaiah said, woe is me. Yes, yes. And, And a lot of people would rather hide in the darkness. And, you know, that's why I take so much hope from Peter saying, uh, once we walked in the darkness, but now we've been called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's frightening for people who don't want to be exposed in the light, but it's marvelous good news for those who realize that coming into the light can also be about new life and new possibilities and cleansing from the Lord. So the reason the good news is good news is because of the exceeding bad news. 
we have to frame the good news in the context of the horrific bad news. Otherwise, the good news just doesn't seem that good, and we think somehow we're entitled to it. Absolutely. I I, I think that's probably the biggest challenge in the church in North America today. Yeah. Okay, so you have framed this very interestingly and helpfully. First of all, Isaiah looked up and he saw the glory of God. Then he, he looked inward and saw the true state of his heart. Then he, because of that, he could he looked outward and saw the grace of God, God's enabling favor and power. Then he looked around and he saw the mission of the Lord and got busy doing it. Absolutely. Okay, that, that is a wonderful, wonderful outline. Uh, so we've been talking a bit about how he looked up and saw the glory of the Lord and what it did. It was as if it was like that uh, uh, breath of God on Mount St. Helens that swept through that whiteout and cleared the way for a 100 miles with unobstructed vision. Unless we have the vi- the, the experience that Isaiah had with God, where we realize, woe is me, because we're shrouded in sin. We're shrouded in, in, in unrighteousness, and woe is me. I'm undone. Unless we come to that place, we're not able to truly see our particular role in God's mission and his kingdom purposes, are we? No, we're not. We're not. And you, you hit the nail on the head with that. And one of the beautiful things, I think, about that first look, the look up, is that Isaiah not only sees the glory of God, which is awesome in its magnitude, but he also hears these seraphim saying, not only is God holy, but they're saying the glory of God fills the whole earth. And, well, the, you know, glory of the, whole, whole God, uh, the glory of God filled the temple first. Yes. Yes, and then the seraphim are saying that in addition to filling the temple, that the glory of God fills the whole earth. And I don't know, even even when we sing about the glory of God coming down, I think sometimes we don't realize that if those seraphim are telling the truth, and by definition that's the only role seraphim have is to speak the truth of God around the throne of God, mm-hmm. if they're telling the truth and the whole earth is full of the glory of God, then where could you be? What circumstance could be so trying or challenging? What darkness could be so deep that the, that the glory of God is absent? And I think the big challenge is that so many of us are focused on the wrong things because we're largely oblivious to the fact that the, fact that the glory of God fills the whole earth and that mm-hmm. we can redirect our gaze to what God is. God is not watching us from a distance, like that ridiculous Bette Midler song said a few years ago. God is as close as the very air that we breathe. His glory is all around us, and he's at work doing things in our world and in our life and wants to be found. But we can't see it because our gaze is fixed on other things. Our gaze is fixed on the trials, the tribulations, the darkness, and uh, uh, we've we've got to have our gaze refixed. But... As I see it again, and I I don't want to leave until we've said this, we can't get to the glory of God without first experiencing the guilt of our falling short of his glory. Yes, 
Absolutely. And that and that's one of the reasons I admire biblical King David so much. Absolutely. Um, because David David was a man after God's own heart according to the scripture, but David was a deeply flawed human being. But instead of hiding from that, David would step forward and say, Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any unclean thing within me. And when he was confronted in his probably his most sinful moment after the whole Bathsheba episode, mm-hmm. when Nathan confronted him, he goes forth and, and pins that amazing prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, and don't, don't cast me away from your presence, Lord. Don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore me. That, that can only come forth from a heart of repentance and a heart that deeply understands its need for a savior. Absolutely. We'll be right back with Max after this. You've got to get this book, Focusing My Gaze, Friends. It'll change your life. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. What a tremendous blessing it is to come before you day after day now for over 26 and a half years, confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective. And we know, for those of you who have listened to this program long, you know that viewpoint determines destiny. There are no neutral viewpoints in our world. None. No matter how small or how great, our viewpoint always determines destiny. And if our viewpoint is not fixed aright, Neither is our gaze. We have to have the right orientation before our gaze becomes rightly oriented. Isaiah had to have that correction done right there as he saw the glory of God and uh, the glory of God filling the temple. Then, from then on, he was able to look inward, saw the true state of his being and then of human beings, and from there was able to look outward. We want to focus on that uh, here in this segment of the program. I want to make sure you get a copy of uh, Max Wilkins' wonderful book, Focusing My Gaze, Beholding the Upward, Inward, and Outward Mission of Jesus. It is a $16 book on our website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. If you're writing a check, add $5 for postage and handling, and uh, we'll get the book in your hands post-haste. Really, I do believe this book is going to change the life of someone listening today. 
It really is. It's going to change your viewpoint, first of all, as to your role in the kingdom of God, and then also give you a fresh and new gaze to be fixed like a laser beam on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So this matter of looking outward, Max, first you have to look inward. God has to get your attention, but human beings don't want God to get our attention, do we? No. Not really. I mean, we hide. Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden, and uh, King Saul hid from God. The first king of Israel hid from God, and God took away his spirit from him. Yes. He said, if you're not going to open up before me, if you're not going to allow me to see into your the deepest recesses of your heart, uh, I can't use you, and he took his spirit from him. You don't hear that often teach, uh, taught or preached, do you? No, unfortunately not. And, you know, even, even the idea of repentance, um, which if you hear it preached, it's almost as if it's about being sorry. But yeah. repentance is not about being sorry. Well, repentance everybody's sorry about, when they get caught. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, re- repentance is about realizing that your life has been completely focused on the wrong things, and mm-hmm. you don't turn around and get focused on the only thing that matters. You're destined for darkness. Yeah, that's why our country is increasingly dark, uh, getting darker yeah. and darker, because... Uh, the house of God refuses to repent. Yeah. We want to, we want to uh, uh, you know, have a certain amount of light to where we see that things aren't quite right. But and, and God, won't you please intervene? Won't you please heal our nation? The problem is we're not willing to meet his conditions. And uh, repentance is the first not to feel bad for your sin, but to be willing to own up to it and turn from it. Right. And uh, that that's the heart of it, and we've got to confess it. We can't hide it anymore. And as long as we continue to hide from it, we're going to see our nation continuing to collapse, I think. I agree with you. And, and I think as well that there has to be a decision to turn away from sin and ugliness and darkness and evil. There also has to be a decision to turn towards the alternative which is Jesus Christ and the grace and glory of God that's available in Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes people try to turn away from sin without, in, in, in the same instance, turning towards Jesus, and that's never going to work. That's true. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that Jesus becomes, in our Christian world today, very much like a placebo. Uh, yeah. we're, we, we believe we're getting the medicine, but not really. We're getting what purports to be the medicine, what we think is the medicine, but it's doing nothing to change things because, first of all, we have redefined Jesus according to our own ideas. Mm, Even Time Magazine, Time, I don't know if you ever saw this article. I've quoted it more than any other article in a magazine in America today. It was April 5th, 1993. The front cover had a cross. In the lower right-hand corner, it said the generation that forgot God. It wasn't talking about the generation that was going to forget God, the one that already had, and that was 1993. Mm. Think about that. So mm. all the seeds for what have happened since 1993 were sown in the 25 years before that. Yes. So then 
you're talking about the church search after Gulf War One. They said church would never again be the same. Bear in mind, this is a secular news magazine. Church would never again be the same. And here's why. Because Americans are looking for a custom-made God, one made in their own image. Therefore, we're looking for a custom-made Jesus. In fact, the church today doesn't believe that the Jesus that is in reality, that the Jesus of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. So we, we worship a schizophrenic God or a God with multiple personalities. And I, I, I think sometimes that um, people want to know about Jesus rather mm-hmm. than knowing Jesus. Oh. And there is a significant difference. Indeed. <laughs> One is informational and the other is transformational. Absolutely. Okay. And, and everybody knows, listening to this program, we don't do information. We do transformation. Amen. And that requires application. Okay. So Isaiah's looking outward which by implication is that we need to come now to the point of looking outward, seeing the grace of the Lord and its outworkings. Here's the problem. Even grace has been redefined. In the last 25 years, grace has been completely redefined, and uh, it's all about God winking at or overlooking our sin. That's the new grace. And uh, that's that's a disgrace. (laughs) Well, it certainly is. And grace actually is a functional thing. It's a function of God's character and mercy. And uh, so, it's yes, it's unmerited favor, but it's also his willingness to use his power on our behalf and to enable us to obey or do his will, isn't it? Yes. That's yes. really and- the essence of grace. And and that that obedience is such an important part of it, and such a, a missing part of it. Uh, you, you you can go all the way back to the earliest days of of the Old Testament faith, and the days of Moses and the Shema Israel, which mm-hmm. you know um, we translate that into English as "Hear, O Israel," or "Listen, Israel." But Shema means to hear with an aim towards obedience. Exactly. It, it means exactly what my mother used to mean when she would say, do you hear me, young man, when she was correcting <laughs> me on something? She didn't mean were the words bouncing off my eardrums, right. and I was able to, to interpret it. She meant, are you going to bring your life in line with what I'm telling you right now? Well, that's exactly and, what James said. Be doers of the word and mm-hmm. not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Yes, and, and when, when you're talking about the problem and the challenges of grace today— I'm convinced that when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, that we have a nation that's filled up with people who want the life of Jesus. They want the abundant life that John 10.10 talks about, but they'd rather have it without having to deal with the truth of Jesus or the way of Jesus. Or the character of Jesus. Yes, and you, you cannot have the life of Jesus if you want to reject the way of Jesus and the truth of Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Well, the Apostle Paul defined that in Philippians chapter 2 when he said that uh, uh, he be, Jesus uh, did not consider it something to be grasped at, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and became obedient, obedient, yeah. obedient, and obey has become the most hated word in the church today. 
Well, and Paul preceded that beautiful hymn when he talks about what Jesus did by saying, have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So he's quite clearly saying Jesus wasn't doing this just on our behalf, but was doing this to model for us exactly how we should respond. Exactly. Okay, so if we're going to turn our gaze upon Jesus, then that implies that we're going to uh, have a heart desire to become like Jesus. We used to yes. sing a song, Oh, to be like him, oh, to be like him, blessed Redeemer, uh, pure as thou art. We don't hear those songs anymore. Well, one, one of the lost doctrines of the church, I think, in the 20th century, and of course we're well past the 20th century now, but was the idea of sanctification. Uh, you know, this this idea that Paul talked about when he talked about moving from glory to glory into mm-hmm. the very image of Jesus, um, this, this process through which the Holy Spirit transforms us more and more into who we were created to be and who um, God is, is shaping us to be. Um, it's as if evangelical Christianity in America has boiled the whole thing down to a fire insurance policy and saying, you know, what's the minimum I need to do to 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 not go to hell instead of thinking about how to be made suitable for the kingdom? Because we can't make ourselves suitable for the kingdom. Only the Lord can do that. But this sanctification thing is a cooperative process. Well, it is. And, it is. And we have to uh, seek first the kingdom. Yes. And uh, this whole idea of a kingdom is very hard for us to grasp because a king, a kingdom, has to have a king. Yes. And for there to be a king, there have to be uh, those who are his subjects. But in order for them to be his subjects, they have to be willing to do what he says, obey his will, because if they don't, they're treasonous. And that's why the penalty of sin is death, because sinners are engaged in treason against God. So if we really understood it that way and that seek first the kingdom of God, uh, the whole idea of Jesus being king, we used to sing a song again, king of my life, I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. What does that mean? We'll talk about that when we get back, friends. Focusing our gaze, beholding the upward, inward, outward mission of Jesus. $16 to put this wonderful, wonderful book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. (laughs) 
It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's right there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33. Jesus is given the Beatitudes, the attitudes of being, and is setting forth in three chapters the uh, principles, the foundational principles of what it means to follow him and be his disciple. And in the midst of that, he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, most people, in quoting that, they will say, seek first the kingdom of God. But that isn't what Jesus said. He said, first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And there's our problem. We don't like the righteousness part of it. We want to seek the fruit without the root. We want to seek the kingdom without the king. And therein lies the reason why so many professing Christians do not operate in the fullness of God's intention. Their gaze is not properly focused. Today, our whole purpose is to help us catch a vision for refocusing our gaze on the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who is the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Not just full of grace, full of grace and truth. He was the encapsulation of everything that the God the Father is and was and ever will be. Hebrews chapter 1. So our guest today, Max Wilkins, with his terrific book, Focusing My Gaze, so much did he have my gaze focused on his book that I almost missed the program today. (laughs) I really did. Now that's really something, Max. That really is something. It's compelling. So talk to us about the kingdom. Well, it's fascinating that um, so many people either never think about the kingdom or the righteousness of Jesus or think that it's irrelevant to their lives or not seeking the kingdom. Because when the disciples asked Jesus, interestingly, after he had already sent them out to do ministry and they came back and said, "Um, would you mind teaching us how to pray? (laughs) (laughs) Which that always intrigues me. I kind of want to ask Jesus sometime why he didn't think that was like worth doing before he sent them out for ministry. But I really think in all honesty that he knew they didn't know what they didn't know until they got out there and found out you can't do ministry without prayer. But when, when when they said, would you teach us how to pray? Jesus said, well, when you pray, ask that God's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is just a beautiful definition of the kingdom. The kingdom is where the glory of God is present and God's will is being done on earth in the same way it is in heaven. Well, my understanding is that there isn't going to be any darkness. There isn't going to be any sin. There's not going to be any unrighteousness. There's not going to be any unforgiveness. There's not going to be any uh, betrayal. There's not going to be any evil whatsoever, even in a shred or a cloud of it yes, in heaven. But, but that's, of course, when the kingdom comes in all its fullness, which uh-huh. you and I both believe will absolutely be the reality. But Jesus told us over and over again that he had come to make it possible for those of us that were following him and following his way to live into that kingdom right now and to begin experiencing um, right now aspects of the kingdom and life in the kingdom in preparation for his coming and establishing the kingdom in all its fullness. So well, Max, he, maybe that's the reason why our country uh, is looking more and more askance 
at the professing Christian community because they see it as as hypocritical as we see some others as being hypocritical. Uh, We're not seeking first the kingdom of God. We're seeking first the fruit of the kingdom of God. And it's missing the, 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 uh, the root. And they see that we're severed from the root. And God himself can't touch us because our root is not connected to the vine. Yes, and they want the fruit, but they don't want the righteousness. Exactly. <laughs> and honestly, the righteousness is the fruit of the kingdom. <laughs> the, mm. the, right, the righteousness is what is the fruit of the Spirit. It's what God is trying to produce in our lives, but we have to be connected. The root is exactly the right word. If we're severed from the root um, and severed from um, the Holy Spirit's transforming sanctifying power in our lives, we can't experience the righteousness, and there won't be any kingdom fruit. Isn't it interesting, the Apostle Paul said, the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. We want the joy and the peace, but we don't want the righteousness. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's funny how many times we pick and choose which parts of this stuff we want to actually buy into. Well, let me give you an illustration. About 10 years ago, uh, I was as many other pastors were in our area here in metropolitan Richmond, Virginia, the birthplace of the nation, uh, was attending a a monthly pastor's prayer breakfast. And it had been going on for a number of years, and there had been a lot of talk about revival in Metro Richmond and revival in America and so on. So I'm crossing the birth river of America on my way down, the James River, and I asked the Lord this specific question. Why, Lord, after all of these years of praying and crying out for revival uh, in our country, in this region, and so on, why is it we haven't seen it? He answered me immediately. Here's what he said. My pastors are not preaching righteousness. Mm. So I get to the meeting, and we're having our nice little warm uh, collegiality with coffee and so on. And one of the pastors there... Uh, pastor of a very large evangelical church, actually that had its roots in the holiness movement, was talking with me. And I was sharing this little tete-a-tete that I'd had with the Lord. And when I said, he said, my pastors are not preaching righteousness, he hung his head, and here's what he said. Chuck, I don't think I even know how to preach righteousness. That's the, when we don't, believe in obedience, when we don't believe that the Lord is actually king, then the whole concept of righteousness becomes, I'm okay, you're okay, because I confess Christ. Mm. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And I, I I think about, you know, Keith Green, 30 years ago or whatever, singing mm-hmm. uh, singing about Satan, you know, uh, celebrating because no one believes in him anymore. And it's just, we've, we've written off whole sections of what Jesus taught about and then tried to create a theology around um, a bankrupt structure, really. The more we begin to see Jesus in the light of his word, as the, as the song says, you know, we used to sing the song again, uh, Trust and Obey. Mm-hmm. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. 
Isn't that the experience that Isaiah had to come into so that his life was conformed, so that his gaze now could be refocused on the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Yes, and and Isaiah came to understand as well that the grace of God wasn't an end point, but a beginning point. When he tasted the grace of God, he also began to see that God had a purpose for his life, a kingdom purpose for his life, and that all of this was leading into him understanding what he was really created for. All right. I like what you said in your book. Repentance is less of a response of guilt and more of a desire to move toward the beauty, purity, and holiness of God. It's not just turning from, it's turning toward, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And when we turn towards, we discover that that God, we discover what Paul said. I, I love Ephesians chapter 2, and in verses 8 and 9, in my opinion, that that's the gospel. It's one expression of the gospel, but by grace we've been saved through faith, and that's not our own. It's the gift of God so that we don't become boastful. But Paul goes on. We have a tendency to stop there. Yes. And Paul goes on and says, For we, those of us who by grace have been saved through faith, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And I think that's an encapsulation of what Isaiah experienced, because when he tasted that grace of God, he also looks up, and I love the biblical scene, because if Isaiah's telling it straight, the only characters in the scene are the Lord, the seraphim, and Isaiah, and God saying from the throne, whom shall I send? You can almost see God looking around, and poor little Isaiah's standing there, and he says, well, maybe me, you know? But it's clear that all of this has been leading up to God helping Isaiah to understand his purpose in the kingdom and his purpose in the mission, just like Paul said was true of all of us. So our eyes have to be opened, and uh, it's interesting that I had just turned to that verse, Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Notice it's us. Yes. Apparently, yeah. the Jewish people haven't read that <laughs> because they think that that is blasphemy, that God is one, so why does he say us? And there are, of course, multiple, multiple places in in the Hebrew Scriptures that, that say similar things. In, including Genesis chapter 1. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, and I... I think I think it's really important for the for for the listeners to know as well that John's gospel tells us that when Isaiah says I saw the Lord seated on the throne, John chapter 12 verse 41 says Isaiah saw Jesus and was speaking about him. God was actually giving Isaiah all those years before preview, if you will, of the salvation history of the world and and of of who and what Jesus So it's like a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Yes, absolutely. Okay, like Moses there at uh, Sinai. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I and you know and I and I'm not just dreaming this up. John's gospel declares it as 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 spirit-inspired truth that um, you know that that Isaiah saw Jesus and was speaking about him. All right. Until I see, and I want to put this very personally here. Uh, we've got listeners that have been listening to us for 26 and a half years. We formed Save America Ministries 28 years ago. And uh, if it had not been for the fact, Max, that 
my whole life was confronted by the Lord in 1978, 1977, when I was running for the state legislature in California. He said, I want you to speak to my church at large, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. That's the here am I. That, that is, I want you. It's like yeah. Uncle Sam pointing his finger and saying, I want you. But I had to be in agreement with that. And I also had to be in a position where I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Yeah. And I saw myself in the context of this kind of a calling. And you think, woe is me. I can't do yeah. this. How am I going to do that? So here we are. 28 years later, having said, here am I, he and I send me, and uh, I think what God is wanting to do in every person's life is say, now, I want to transform you to be my kingdom servant for such a time as this, that every single one of us on this planet, on the near edge of the second coming, who professes the name of Christ, needs to come to the place, and God is wooing us, even by this program today, to focus our gaze on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him. And he's saying, now I, I want to set joy before you. Isn't that what he's saying? Absolutely. And, and Chuck, I don't think I've ever heard a better summation of what I was trying to say in, in this book. You've, you've just absolutely nailed it. And, and well done as well for 28 years of faithfulness to that promise you made to the Lord to live into his kingdom in that way. So for Christians, this is the greatest issue of our yes. hearts and homes, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. The greatest issue. Well, thank you so much, Max. You have been a blessing today. I trust that uh, many will uh, gravitate toward your book and get their gaze fixed and uh, be restored and uh, prepared to do the will of God like Queen Esther for such a time as this. $16 will put the book in your hands, friend. It's on our website, saveus.org. Focusing my gaze, call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us. When you write, become a partner, friends. It's tough business here. Tough business preparing the way of the Lord. Making straight paths for our feet. Help us to get the message out. Tell your friends, Romans and countrymen, about the program. Let's work together until Jesus comes. been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.